Okay, now we look on page one. Okay, under the topic of the definition, the noble truth of stress, it's clinging aggregates, and these are the four kinds of clinging. Sensuality clinging, view clinging, habit and practice clinging, and doctrine of self-clinging. Sensuality clinging, as I said, is clinging to our fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures. View clinging is when you hold on to a view, saying, okay, this view makes me a better person than other people, or this view will... Simply having this view is my salvation, that kind of thing. Taking the view as the goal of the practice. Habit and practice clinging. This is when you feel that there's certain ways I've got to do things. If things are not done that way, it's wrong. Um, and good a good illustration of that is there's a story they tell in Thailand of this old guy who ordained late in life. And he saw that as a John, every morning when he would go out for his alms, would put his bowl up, look, look his bowl up to the sun like this, and then take it down. And so the old monk would pick his bowl up, take it down. And someone asked him one day, why do you put your bowl up like that? He said, I don't know, my teacher did it. <laughs> so why don't you go ask your teacher? And the teacher said, well, I was looking to see if there was a hole in the bowl. I mean, <laughs> That's habit and practice clinging. In other words, just something you hold on to regardless of whether you're getting any results out of it, but that you feel this is the way things have got to be done. Um, that book I was talking about last night, Across Arctic America by Knut Rasmussen, talked about all the many, many taboos that all the different Inuit villages had, and each village had its own set of taboos. And he would ask them about them and say, we can't explain them. These are just the taboos that were handed down from our ancestors. And there was one case where Rasmussen had gone with a series of other scientists, and they'd split up to do different things. And there were two or three scientists who were there to study flora and fauna. And they'd gone out with some of the Inuits. And it turned out that one of the scientists, this Danish guy, was breaking a lot of the taboos. And the Inuits were planning to kill him because they were afraid that you know, by breaking the taboo, he was going to bring bad luck on the group. And they liked him. They had no ill will against him, but they said, this guy is just breaking you know, all these taboos. It's making life dangerous for us. Luckily... Rasmussen got there in time. But that is also a habit of practice clinging. Things have to be done a certain way. You don't know why, but you've just been told that this has to be done that way, and you stick to it. Um, and finally, doctrine of self-clinging. That's when you believe, okay, you identify and define yourself in a particular way, and you hold on to that identity. Now, of these clingings, we'll find out that on the path, you actually use three of them. You cling to right view. You cling to certain habits and practices. The word habit here can also sila can also mean virtue, precepts. You hold on to the precepts. And doctrine of self-clinging, you hold on to an idea of myself, I am capable of doing the path, I am the person who is responsible for my choices. I am the person who will benefit from this. That type of self you actually hold on to provisionally as part of the path. The one that does not have any role in there is sensuality clinging. Like when the monks are sitting about and thinking, gee, I had kombucha today, maybe I get kombucha tomorrow. That's not part of the path. <laughs> I have to have some lessons for my junior monks here. Okay. 
But as Ananda goes on to point out in the in the next passage, the Buddha teaches the path that goes from you go over the flood. He says by going from one support to the next. The word support here, aramana. In some places, they would say the equivalent word would be going from one clinging to the next. And here we have the the passage on the, the raft, taking the raft across the flood. You've probably seen this many times. I just want to point out a few things here. One, as I said last night, there's, there's no nirvana boat coming over from the other side. You have to create your own raft to take it across. So you're going to be using your fabrication. You're going to be using your aggregates to create the path that takes you across. Um, you hold on to the raft as you go across. But also notice, as we get into the next passage, when the, you're taking the raft across the great expanse of water. The great expanse of water, this is the passage at the very bottom of the page, stands for the fourfold flood, the flood of sensuality, the flood of becoming, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. Okay, the flood that you're trying to get across is composed of views, but the raft stands for the eightfold path, which has right view. So you hold on to right view to get yourself across all other views. And eventually when you get to the other side, you let go of that as well. So this is the dynamic. This is how clinging works on the path. And it's important that you understand this, because all too often we say, I know I shouldn't have any views, I shouldn't have any preferences, therefore I'll just you know, not have views and preferences. It doesn't work that way. You cannot clone awakening. You said, this is, this is the means by which I'm going to get there. I have to hold on to views to get across the flood of views. Okay. And the way this works is indicated in the following passage. First it starts out with an undependent of the householder. Now he's he here is a stream enterer, which means he's had his first taste of awakening. He's had his first taste of the deathless. So it happens one morning. He's, it's too early in the morning to go see the monks because the monks are out on their alms round. And so he says, well, maybe I can go over and talk to the wanderers. Maybe I'll hear what they're up to. And so they see him coming. And they ask him, you know, what kind of views does the Buddha have? And Ananda Bindika, who is a stream matter, he's always had his already had his first take of awakening, taste of awakening. He says, you know, I really don't know the full extent of the Buddha's views. Then how about the monks? I don't know the full extent of their monks' monks' views. How about your views? Okay, I'll tell you my views, but first you tell me yours. So they go down and tell him their various views, and this is kind of a list of the hot topics of the time. The cosmos is not eternal. The cosmos, excuse me, the cosmos is eternal. The cosmos is not eternal. The cosmos is finite. The cosmos is infinite. The soul and the body are the same. The soul is one thing, and the body is another. After death, a datagata, that means someone who's awakened, exists, does not exist, both does and does not exist, or neither exist or does not exist. Only this is true, anything else is otherwise is worthless. That's the sort of view I have. So they have this set of ten views that they hold on to. And so he says, okay, take the first one. His view arises, this is in the one, two, three, fourth paragraph. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Now, this view has been brought into being as fabricated will dependently co-arisen. Okay. It's all the factors beginning from ignorance all the way up to clinging and craving. Whatever has been brought into being as fabricated will dependently co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. This venerable one thus adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. In other words, for all these opinions, they leave you stuck in just simply holding on to the opinion. And once you hold on to the opinion, they leave you in stress. So when this was said, the wanderer said to him, Okay, 
We've each and every one expanded to you in line with our own position. Now tell us what views you have. And this is, this is what Ananda Bendiga says. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever stress is not me, is not mine, is not myself. In other words, you don't stop with just seeing that this is stressful and constant. You say, I don't, I should not identify with this. You're looking at the activity of holding on to the views. That's what he's looking at. He's not looking at the content so much. He's looking at the activity. This is what it means to hold on to a view. The act of holding on is going to be stressful. Therefore, I abandon it. This is how right view transcends itself. It teaches you to look at everything else in terms of the act of holding on regardless of whether you're holding on to the idea of an eternal world or an ineternal world, finite or infinite, and so on down the line. He's less interested in the content of the view and more interested in the act of, this is what it means to hold on to a view. And this is what happens as a result of holding on to the view. Now those views just leave you stuck. This view helps get you even past the act of holding on, which is how right view is right in the sense that it allows yourself to transcend itself. And they, and they, first they taught him. So, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated will, dependently co-risen, that is inconstant, what is inconstant is stress. You, and they miss that last sentence in his view. They say, you thus hold to that very stress, submit yourself to that very stress. In other words, they accuse him of the same thing that he accused them of. But he goes on to say, no, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated will, dependently co-risen, is inconstant, what is stress. Whatever stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it has come to be, I also discern the higher escape from it as it has come to be. In other words, this is the view that allows, that contains the seeds for its own transcendence because it focuses you on the activity of holding to a view among all other activities. Are there any questions on that? They are focused on worlds, identities, He's focused on what does it mean to hold, to create a view? What does it mean to hold on to a view? Is, there, is it possible to use that knowledge to get beyond the need to hold on to views? That's what right view does. It, causes, it makes you look at your own mind in the activity of creating a view and the activity of holding on to a view. So it changes the focus from out there to what the mind is doing right now. And that's why it's, it's able to transcend itself. Yes? So in that case, it's not a matter of something that isn't right or wrong. So if I have the view that 2 plus 2 equals 4... It's not, uh, it's not going to bring you to the end of stress. It's going to, it's going to help you when you buy groceries. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not going to bring you to the end of stress. But, but I thought what you were saying is I can see that holding on to 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not uns unskillful, but it would be the part of saying, and you need to recognize that I'm always smarter or something. Yeah, that, yeah. That right. Because mm -hmm. there two plus two, in my humble opinion, is equal to four. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's all I can say. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're getting out there on the, on the street, you know, saying we, we have to abolish all people who think that two plus two equals five, then you'd be getting into trouble. Now two, I mean, two plus two is equals four is, is the kind of view that's useful for when you're, in, you're using, you know, engaging in math and having to figure things out. But you realize, okay, I use that for that purpose, and then I put it aside. We don't sit around in the cafes in the evening and, you know, sip absinthe and talk about two plus two equals four. 
it's kind of it's one of those views that we know. Okay, this is, you pick it up for this purpose and you put it down for that once it's done, right? See, I just got caught in this. Just yesterday, there was a fact that was made. There was a, there was a fact. This is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else said, I don't care. Just don't raise my taxes. <laughs> it, it was a political. It was, or don't raise my taxes. They couldn't hear the two plus two equal four. Yeah. And unfortunately, Shelley's self got in and and got angry. I got angry, and then I I laughed at myself because it was ridiculous to see. It was wrong view for me to somehow think this person or these group of people should think otherwise. Mm-hmm. Why should I be angry? And, and so I laughed. Well, the, there are times when it is useful to, to start to say, hey, point out to these people, if you hold on to this particular view, these are going to be the consequences. Do you, are, do you really want to live with those consequences? I don't have the skill to do that yet. Okay, then you say, I'm going to leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like you know, Valley Center had this issue on the ballot last year, whether we wanted to raise taxes a little tiny bit so we could get better fire protection. And given California state law, we had to have a two-thirds majority. So the majority, you know, we had a 55% majority, we lost. Okay. So, so what do you do? Hmm. Say, okay, next time around. I mean, there are some, there are some views that are, you know, you see, if I, can, if I can convince these people, I will argue it. It's not the case that the Buddha did not get into arguments with people. He did. But he chose his arguments. Is this kind of the kind of person who really wants to listen to reason, or are they just going to hold on to their, their view? If they're just going to hold on, the Buddha said, I'm not going to waste my time. But so this this is how right view acts. It's, it's the kind of thing that you can cling to, but it also helps to get you past past it. Once once you've developed it fully and it's done its work, then you can let it go. In other words, you turn the analysis of right view onto right view itself. So this this too is a view. Okay, once I've taken care of all these wrong views, then I'm going to focus on letting go of this as well. That's how the path works as a whole. It's the same with concentration. It is a state of becoming, but it makes you more and more sensitive to, well, what is the mind doing when it creates states of becoming? You see it like you're trying to get the mind to stay with the breath, and all of a sudden you're downtown, you know, thinking about the next Powell's book sale or whatever. And you can begin to see it. These are the stages by which the mind goes through that to create this other world. And so you see the mind in the process of becoming more and more clearly. So you learn how to let go of those other becomings. Okay, if it's not related to the breath, you let it go. Not related to the breath, you let it go. Finally, you realize, okay, there is one state of becoming that's still left, focused on the breath. You turn on that and let go of that, that's when you get free. So this is how the path works. It's something you hold on to until it's complete and you developed it. When it's fully developed, it, it kind of naturally will turn on itself to let go of itself.
Okay, you, you apply the analysis of the path, and part of right view is to look at the activity of holding on to things. And so, gosh, you know, hold on to Powell's bookstore, you hold on to your political views, you hold on to those things, gosh, I'm really suffering, I should let go of these. And then you've taken care of all that, and the one thing that's left, oh, I'm holding on to the state of concentration, I'm holding on to right view. Okay, I got, this too is fabricated, I've got to let it go. So it's like, a, that's the point where it turns on itself and lets you let it go. We'll have this image from a John, images from a John Lee and a John Cha at the end. Sort of illustrate this. We'll get there, hope, we'll get there before four. Okay. First, let's look at some wrong views. As I said, the Buddha was generally not the kind of person who would go out and pick fights with people, but there are two or three cases in the canon where he actually does. <laughs> and first, here are these three sectarian guilds here on the bottom of page two. That even though they may explain otherwise, they remain stuck in a doctrine of inaction. Which three? Those who hold the teaching that whatever person experiences, pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, is all caused by what was done in the past. Now, it's interesting. This is a view of karma that is sometimes attributed to the Buddha himself. In other words, that your present moment is determined by the past. You've probably heard that statement. If you want to see a person's past actions, you look at their present condition. If you want to see their future condition, you look at their present actions. It's not true. Because people have a lot more stuff in their past that it's not showing up at the present moment. That statement is, is kind of like the assumption you have one karmic balance in the bank, and what you, what, one karmic account in the bank, and what you see is the running balance. Actually, the image the Buddha gives is of a field full of seeds. You have lots and lots of different actions in the past, some of which have not borne fruit yet. All you see are the ones that are bearing fruit at the moment, but there's a lot in that person's past you can't see. And at the same time, what that person does with those things that do bear fruit depends what the person does with them in the present moment is going to determine whether that person suffers or doesn't suffer from those past actions. It's like having a kitchen garden, and today's harvest is not all that good, but you're a really good cook. You can make good food out of it. On the other hand, you've got really good karma coming in from the past, but you're a lousy cook. You can ruin some really good dishes. You know. So not everything is totally determined by what was done in the past. In other words, whatever person experiences pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful is all caused by a supreme being's act of creation. In other words, what you are was determined by, and what your experience is determined by some supreme being that created you, created the world. That places all the responsibility back on the supreme being. And finally, saying that whatever person experiences pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful, is all without cause and without condition. Let's take that first case. So he goes and he asks these people, is this what you really believe? And they said, yes. He said, in that case, this is the idea that whatever you experience was caused, by, was caused caused by what was done in the past. A person is a killer of living beings because of what was done in the past. A person is a thief, uncelibate, a liar, a divisive speaker, a harsh speecher, an idle chatterer, greedy, malicious, a holder of wrong views, all because of what was done in the past. 
When what falls back on what was done in the past as being essential, there is no desire, no effort of the thought, this should be done, this shouldn't be done. If everything is predetermined, there's no reason to choo try to choose your actions. Because no matter what, you, you have no realm of choice. So you don't take on responsibility for what you're going to do. You're trying to even make the effort to say, well, I should do this, I should not do that. And then he goes on to say, when you don't try to pin down as a truth or a reality what should or shouldn't be done, you dwell bewildered and unprotected. Now, the word bewildered here comes from the Buddha's analysis of how we ordinarily react to stress and suffering. Think of a little child with a pain. The child knows nothing about why the pain is there. All they know is that they don't like it, have no idea where it's coming from. They are bewildered. And the whole purpose of the Buddhist teachings is to end our bewilderment around pain, around suffering. But if you say, okay, everything you've done is totally, everything you experience is totally beyond your control, you're still left bewildered. Why, why is this? Why would the Supreme Being want me to suffer? Or if everything is random, why did it randomly happen this way? What, there's, you have no recourse to any course of action that could put an end to suffering. So all of these views make you incapable of finding a path to the end of suffering, which is why the Buddha saw, saw it, found it so important to go out and refute them. Any questions on that? So the Buddha is basically implicitly saying here that a teacher's duty is to show you, okay, there is a course of action that you can do and it does make a difference. It's worth your while to do it. As he said earlier, if he, if he couldn't do this, he wouldn't have taught it. If it wasn't worth your while doing it, he wouldn't have taught it. He's fulfilling a teacher's duty by showing this is skillful, this is unskillful, this should be done, this should not be done. And then in the areas where it sort of general rules don't apply, he teaches you, well, this is how you become more observant about your own actions and the results so that you can, be, you can be, begin to decide for yourself what should and shouldn't be done based on your experience. Free will. Hmm? Free will. Free will. Not totally free, but you have choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not totally free? You can't say, Shazam, I want to become a Deva right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the idea that there is a supreme being up there who is totally unchanging has created a changing world. That's pretty. That's pretty close to one of the versions of Brahmanism that was taught at that time. We. It is a mistake to think that Brahmanism is a big monolithic religion that everybody agrees on. I mean, that was something that was invented in the 19th century. What we call Hinduism now is a 19th century invention. They took lots of different religions and tried to bring them all to be one. But that's one of the versions that was available then. Yes? Last night you were mentioning to somebody the idea of 
It's it's one of those perceptions that's going to turn and bite you at some point. Like when you get off, I'm always I'm always always getting backwards. When, when are you on the wagon? When are you off the wagon? When you're drunk? You're on the wagon sober. When you're off the wagon drunk, okay. When you get off the wagon, what happened to higher power? So, something sort of like, well, generally I heard when I was seven, that really stuck. Um, the lesson was always taught, God helps those who help themselves. Exactly what verse and chapter of the Bible is that found in? made me? Who made me? God made me lazy to begin with. And that, I mean, God is always taking, taking credit for all the good things in the world, but always like placing the blame on the rest of us. Um, well, so, so where is the use? You know, there seems to be then a gray area between you can use something skillfully and then you have to know your so if you, if you say you stop drinking, that alone doesn't really change the mindset. Kind of like I guess you can, be, you can meditate all you want, but if you're not willing to let go of other unskillful means in your life, you're going to get stuck. Yeah. The, the Buddha has an interesting passage where he's asked about the different kinds of speech you would give. He says, one has to be true, two, beneficial, three, timely. And he goes through the various permutations of that, and the one permutation he does not even consider is that something is not true, but it is beneficial. It might be beneficial up to a point, but then it actually starts turning on you. And for him, the, the idea of everything falling back on a creative, you know, supreme being, that's going to turn on you at some point. So it's best not even to pick it up to begin with. So he also, so people would say, well, I can't see a higher power. Don't, you know, I, I can't believe in that, but they also can say, I can't believe in karma either. I can't see that. So, presenting the both of those, well, I can't see either of those, and they have to take the, the word. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the Buddha says basically it's, we'll get to this later, what he calls the safe bet, which is that okay, if you assume that there's going to be this higher power that will or will not come, depending on the higher wells, higher powers' mood that day. Is that going to encourage you to act skillfully, or is it the belief in karma going to encourage you to act skillfully? That's something you can see. There's what they call the pragmatic test. 
if I adopt this, what, how will I act? Because I'm wondering about the teacher who's, who's teaching that. Because if it's sort of like somebody teaching about this higher power and still saying, okay, well, things may not be going well, but you're blaming something other than your own skillful actions. It's almost like, well, believing your encouragement of this higher power is like a perception in your own mind. You'll get help if you continue to pursue, persevere through skillful means. It's not really, there's no, there's no proof one way or another that a higher, somebody, a higher power is doing something for you. The means is, are you willing to believe, and it's the belief, I think, itself, that changes the person within their own minds to figure out some other way to get out of their problems than to go back to drinking or not to address the issues. The same way as you can refute uh, karma, or you can work with it skillfully, even though you can't prove it, you can say, well, my teacher and my teacher's teacher says this. Even then, you, would, you can't just go by just because the teacher said it. You have to ask yourself, which kind of belief is going to encourage you to behave in a more skillful way? So similarly, if, if, you, if you believe, well, some, this, I'm getting this power to make more skillful action, for that time being, if you're continuing skillful action and it works, continue skillful action until you get to the place where you can say, oh, well, maybe the skillful action is in my mind. And if I make those efforts, there will be some shift or some help. But I'm the one who has to make those efforts. Okay, well, the belief in the skillful power is not going to get you there. No, it's not going to get you that point of realization. You have to pull out of the belief in skillful power to say, "Oh, it's actually my own. It's actually my act of belief that made the difference." But you can see yeah, but it requires a real dropping of that first assumption. It was, it was the perception that made the difference, and then, then you're looking at. Okay, you're looking at the action. You're looking at the actions of your mind, which the belief in the higher power does not encourage you to look at the actions of the mind. It focuses your attention someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a real radical drop of the original perception. Yeah, it, the thing is, awakened people never abandon the idea that karma works. I mean, they found something that's going beyond karma, but they know that's how they got there. And when they teach, that's what they teach other people. Say, so this is what really, this is how it really works. Right, but they've never had to abandon the idea that this is really right view.
Okay, there are other, a list of other wrong views here. And they, some of them sound kind of quaint, but they actually correspond to views that are either attributed to the Buddha now or found out there in society. In acting or getting others to act, in mutilating, getting others to mutilate, in torturing, getting others to torture, in inflicting sorrow, and getting others to inflict sorrow, etc., etc., etc. One does no evil. If with a rage, this is an amazing analogy here. If a rage-ed disc, one were to turn all the living beings on this earth into a single heap of flesh, a single pile of flesh, there would be no evil from that cause. He goes on and on and on. Through generosity, self-control, restraint, and truthful speech, there is no merit from that cause, no coming of merit. Another side, there is no good and evil. Those, they're just conventions. You see that sometimes in, in some sectors of society. Another view. There is no cause, no requisite condition for the defilement of beings. Beings are defiled without cause, without requisite condition. There is no cause, no requisite condition for the purification. There is nothing self-caused, nothing other-caused, nothing human-caused. There is no strength, no effort, no human energy, no human endeavor. All living beings, all life, all beings, all souls are powerless, devoid of strength, devoid of effort. This is total determinism. Subject to the changes of fate, serendipity, and nature, they are sensitive to pleasure and pain in the six great classes of birth. In other words, you just got to put up with things and you can't you have no power to make any changes. Now these these are the people who would say it is impossible to develop skillful qualities there's no there, and it is there's an advantage to developing skillful qualities. This is why the Buddha classes this as wrong view. You're powerless to do anything. So one might think through this morality, this practice, this austerity of holy life, I will ripen, unripen karma and eliminate ripen karma whenever touched by it. That is impossible. Pleasure and pain are measured out. The wandering on is, has fixed in its limits. There's no shortening or lengthening, no accelerating or decelerating. Just as a ball of string when thrown comes to its end simply by unwinding. In the same way, having has transmigrated and wandered on, the wise and the foolish alike will put an end to pain. Okay, now this, this is a belief that there is rebirth, but karma plays no role in deciding where you're going to go. It's all been measured out ahead of time. The view of Chita Gesa Gumbelin is the opposite of mundane right view that we dis that we discussed earlier in the afternoon. Start at line five on that paragraph. A person is a composite of four primary elements. At death, the earth, the earth and the body returns and merges with the external earth substance. Fire, liquid, and wind return to and merge with the external substance. The sense faculties scatter into space. Four men with the beer as a fifth carry the corpse. Its eulogies are cited only as far as the charnel ground. The bones turn preaching colored offerings and in ashes. Generosity is taught by idiots. <laughs> the words of those who speak of existence after death are false, empty chatter. With the break of the body, the wise and the foolish alike are annihilated, destroyed. They do not exist after death. Okay, this is a doctrine of annihilationism. I mean, there's nothing in, the, in, in you that's going to continue on after death. We see this nowadays in the belief that well, your, your awareness, your consciousness are all are created by the body. It's a, what they call an epiphenomenon of physical processes. When the physical processes end, that's it. 
a strictly materialistic view. This too is wrong. And then a final one. There are these seven substances, unmade, irreducible, uncreated, without a creator, bare, unstable as a mountain peak, standing firm like a pillar, that do not alter, do not change, do not interfere with one another, are incapable of causing one another pleasure, pain, or both pleasure and pain. Which seven? The earth substance, the liquid substance, the fire substance, the wind substance, pleasure, pain, and the soul is the seventh. And among them is no killer or one who causes killing, no hearer or one who causes hearing, no cognizer or one who causes cognition. When one cuts off another person's head, there is no one taking anyone's life. It is simply between the seven substances that the sword passes. Now this view is sometimes attributed to the Buddha. There's, no, there's nobody doing anything, there's nobody harmed by action. There's nobody there, right? Yet the Buddha is saying, this is wrong view. Any questions on those wrong views? I mean, you, if you adopted them, it would be impossible to take on a path of practice that would lead to the end of suffering. Either they would say it's impossible to make the choice, or it's impossible to end suffering, or there's nobody there to begin with, or your consciousness is just an, kind of a byproduct of the body. That's it. All of these would get into the way of, of a path of practice that would lead to the end of suffering. Which is why they're definitely wrong. If you're, if you're determined, I want to put it into suffering, you cannot entertain these views because they get in the way. Questions? But even um, before the Buddha, there was the mundane right view, right? Otherwise. Oh, yeah, there's mundane right view prior to him. That's why their beings were born in all the heavens and whatnot. But one thing that's particularly ironic right now is that that last one, the, the materialist view that okay, you're just an epiphenomenon of your, of your body. Some people say, well, now that Buddhism has come to the West, we're materialists. Buddhism is going to have to adopt to a materialist worldview. It's putting, it's trying to squeeze Buddhism into a worldview that he basically says, look, you cannot have a path to practice the end of suffering if you adopt this view. Yes. Uh-oh. When I'm in trouble, I, I thought this was one of the, those ones that you could... Uh, I was thinking rebirth was one of those notions that could be useful, and then you would let it go. And I guess I've got that backwards. Um, it's a really good working hypothesis. Which one? Rebirth. I can see it useful. I mean, it, it hit me just recently, last month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how that would be useful. Well, one of the one of the byproducts of having your first awakening, first taste of awakening, is you realize that your that your experience did not begin with the birth of this body. Because basically, what you're doing, you're stepping out of time, and as you step out of time, you're like, well, it was a long, long time that I've been suffering. This is why one of the first things the Buddha realized, okay, when you get fully awakened, that's the end of this long, long process that's been going on for a long time. So. I thought it ended because I didn't have any children. 
<laughs> That's the end of your gene lineage. <laughs> no, I mean, I could see that my suffering, a lot of it, you know, from historically, I know some of the, you know, the history, I could see, yeah, yeah, of course. Hmm. It ends here. That's the suffering in your family lineage. <laughs> your suffering has been going on for a long time. That's a hypothesis. It's a good working hypothesis. And I only test it in the end. It, 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 gets, it gets confirmed at awakening. You know, the Buddha didn't teach anything that he didn't realize in his awakening. There are a lot of things he realized in his waking he didn't teach. But he said, okay, this is worth teaching. You know that image of the handful of leaves? Yeah. This is part of that handful of leaves. Yeah. I can see that the beliefs of the Brahmins is also a way of kind of... Um, and suffering, you know, if you cling to the idea that life is fair or that bad things won't happen and and, and meaning of bad things is that something bad you did or whatever, and I can see that that is an effort and also that, you know, you know you're going to die and why, why suffer about it because it doesn't mean much. And, you know, so I can see that all as an, as an effort. But, um, and that Buddha's... Not just saying, uh, you know, yeah, life is hell, put up with it, and quit being attached to that. He's saying, no, life can, not, can be free of suffering. Which is much bigger stuff. Yeah. Question? It seems more and more to me that um, the, the reincarnation is also. Um, a, a tangle of views that have to do with, um, I, I mean, can be the way we can see that self is wrapped up in it. A lot of times, popular conceptions of reincarnation, different senses of time, and um, and kind of limited um, linear causal views, karma and stuff. So, so to me, it seems like. Um, Personally, it like nothing for me makes sense without reincarnation. But there's also this whole view range in it that's tangled up. Well, if you learn how to use it skillfully, it is actually very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the problem is that people say, "Gee, if you say that so and so is suffering because of something they did in the past, you're turning the victim into the you know perpetrator, you know, making the victim guilty." You say, "Well." Look in terms of more that, okay, there was an action and this is the result. The person was a very different person back in the past, maybe, who did that thing. You learn how to look at, look at it that way. Learn how to look at karma, as, as you say, as non-linear in the sense that, okay, you're creating certain conditions right now, but you don't have to suffer from them. And the idea that saying, well, so-and-so, you know, they're obviously suffering because of something they did in the past, therefore they deserve to continue to suffer, that's a wrong assumption. Because again, they may have some karmic potentials in their background which we don't know about. 
So I think the tangled views about rebirth tend to be all the wrong views about rebirth. So, have you seen the book Karma Q and A? Yeah, that's it's an attempt to straighten out some things. Yes. How does reincarnation relate to family lineage? Just the fact that you are in this particular family doesn't mean that you were in the family before. You may have had some relationship with different members of the family, and it may have been a very different relationship, but not necessarily in that particular that particular family. It's interesting that um, inheritance or you know, genetic inheritance in Thailand is called um, karma relation, <laughs> in the sense that you have these genes because of some karma you did in the past. And the extent to which that's true, I, I really can't say. But it is, you know, the Buddha said you're not going to meet somebody who hasn't been your mother, hasn't been your father, hasn't been your brother, a sister, a daughter, a son. He said, "Good look, good Lord, all around this room, all my mothers, good grief." <laughs> and the Buddha says the, the proper reaction is that I want to get out. <laughs> Goes into one body and comes out the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit what rebirth and the, the right? Okay, well, the Buddha doesn't go into the metaphysics of rebirth at all. What it is that gets reborn, he doesn't answer. He just accepts there is a process, and the process is, is fueled by craving and clinging, which are things you know in your direct experience, and you can do something about that, which is why he points you there. But all the other people in his time were basically saying, this is what a person is. And be given that this is what a person is, the person either could or could not be reborn. And the Buddha says, don't, don't start with a definition of what the person is. Just look at the process. This is how rebirth happens from moment to moment. And it's the same process is going to happen as this body dies. And the image he gives is a fire going from one house to the other, not neighboring house, but without any wood connecting them. It's blown by the wind. The wind here would be your craving. And since that's something you can see, something you can work with, maybe you can cut the process. So rebirth is a, is a better word than reincarnation. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so um, I guess basically, I'm wondering: Are you saying if? You don't believe in karma, and it's not that I believe or disbelieve in karma, um, because it's just unknowable for me right now. But are you saying that that's such a, a pivotal belief that you can't be on or towards that path if you don't have? Again, it, the word belief here, it's not. Believe it to say, okay, I'm going to swear on a pile of Bibles that I believe in this. It's more, I'm open to this idea and I'm going to, I'm going to pursue it. I, I, I'm open to it, but perhaps I, what I'm asking is that um, perhaps it, 
it isn't a priority for me to put that first because I don't understand why I couldn't make myself a better person without that. Belief. You have to believe that your actions have results. It, and, but in my lifetime, is this delusional that I feel like my actions can have a good result mm -hmm. in this lifetime? But a lot of things you're going to do that you're not going to see the results in this lifetime. And that's okay, too. Um, I mean, I, I just put it out, you know, it's like, I do that, it's the, uh, the heel to bronze, you know, point the arrow, I let it go. That's what I strive. That's one of the things I, you know, I'm just trying to understand Again, for, for the Buddha, it's, it's the issue of belief here, it's conviction, is let's try it on as a working hypothesis. Okay. And, and uh, I like the idea of saying, if I really believed in karma, how would I act? And then act that way for a while and see if you become a better person. That's as far as the proof that the Buddha could give you at any point until you began awakening. Yes? Um, I'm wondering if I'm seeing a connection with something. The, the, the history of viewing Buddhism's goal as a non-reactivity, like watching the waves coming in and coming out and not, you know, attaching to the good ones or pushing away the bad ones. Did that sort of begin when uh, Buddhism reached materialistic cultures? Because I'm, I'm kind of noticing that if you try to think of a goal that had freedom, that didn't rely on outside uh, power, but you had an uncertain beginning and annihilation at the end, the only solution would be a, a non-reactivity. That would be the only sense of freedom. I'm wondering if there's been, in your knowledge, any history uh, of that sort of non-reactivity as the goal prior to Buddhism reaching materialistic uh, cultures. I haven't seen it. I mean, that's... You're trying to sell Buddhism to non-materialistic people, that's what you end up with. You say, well, all you've got is the present moment, therefore be okay with the present moment. It also has to deal with, you know, people are pretty fairly well off to be able to accept that. The middle class and non-reactivity you're mentioning. Right, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the... I mean, there, there was a case with the, with the um, Kuaiyan school in China with the belief that Okay, this, we live in a perfect world already, you know, that this world is the embodiment of Vairochana, the, the, great, the great Buddha. That was sold to the Empress of China. The Empress of China, she was pretty well off, you know. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you can sell to peasants. Okay, the next passage is quite long. But it's basically getting to the point that I was saying earlier, which is that if you would take karma as an assumption, you're, you are likely to behave in a much better way. Therefore, it's a, it's, it's a good assumption to take on. It's kind of like Pascal's wager. You're better off assuming it than, than not assuming it. But then it goes on to another one, which is not quite like Pascal's wager. This would be that paragraph on page 5 that says, There are some contemplatives and Brahmins who hold this doctrine, hold this view. There is no total cessation of becoming. In other words, there is no nirvana. 
And there's some contemplatives speak in direct opposition to those contemplatives of Brahma say that there is total cessation of becoming. Now, what do you think? Don't these contemplatives of Brahma speak in direct opposition to each other? Yes. Okay, the observant person considers thus. Those venerable, those who hold this view, there is no cessation of becoming. I haven't seen that. As for those who have the opposite view, I haven't seen that either. If I, not knowing, not seeing, were to take one side and declare only this is true, everything else is worthless, that would not be fitting for me. But, those who hold the view that there is no total cessation of becoming, if their statement is true, there's a safe bet possibility that it might at best or appear among the perception made devas of no form. In other words, you can you can create karma up to the point of becoming a formless deva, but that's as far as you're going to go. You can't get better than that. As for those who hold the opposite view, if their statement is true, it's possible that I will be totally unbound in the here and now. Okay, one view opens more possibilities for the power of action. And the Buddha says, it's, it's better to take the view that opens more possibilities. Even though you can't prove it for yourself yet, adopt it for your own purposes. You don't go out and argue with other people, but say, for my own purposes, I'm going to act as if this were true, just to see how far I can go. You think about the Buddha striving for his awakening. There was no guarantee that he was going to find awakening. But he felt, you know, here I am, I'm a human being, let's see how far human action can go. And he operated on the position, on the assumption to say, let's assume that it is possible to use human action to go all the way to the end of suffering. What would that path be? And end up trying different paths and finally found it. If you close off your mind saying it is not possible to put an end to suffering, you're not going to find it. You're closing off that possibility. So even though you don't know for sure one way or the other at the moment, he said, let's take the possibility, the, open, the position that takes more opens more possibilities for what I can accomplish. That's the kind of what he calls a safe bet proposition. Any questions about that argument? Yes? The formless devas? Yes, that would, you know, you get into the state of the infinitude of consciousness, the infinitude of space. But that's, that would be as far as you could go. You'd have to accept yourself, I can go this far, and then I'll fall back down again. But if you assume it, there is an escape, okay, that opens the you're opening the possibility for yourself. You're not closing off that door. It's, good, it's best not to close off doors that you don't have to close off, you know. Okay, agnosticism is the next topic. Now we all know that there are certain positions that the Buddha did not take. The question of, is the world finite, infinite, eternal, non-eternal? The Buddha said he was not going to answer those. But the one issue that he that he did not take an agnostic stance, and that was what is skillful and what is not. And he's pretty derisive about teachers who refuse to make, take a stance on what is skillful and what is not skillful. And including those who are afraid if, if I were to take a position on this, that would be desire on my part, a passion, aversion, and irritation, 
wherever it would be a desire, passion, or aversion, or irritation would be clinging on my part. In other words, you've seen this around you. People say, I don't want to take a position on that because that would be clinging. And this is an area where the Buddha says, no, you've got to take a position. Why is that? Because you're constantly acting and you're constantly having to choose which kind of action is going to be useful, which kind of act is worth the effort, which kind is not. These are calculations we're making all the time. I mean, you could say, I'm, I'm going to be agnostic on the number of moons around Jupiter. Because it's not one of those things you have to <laughs> base your decisions on. <laughs> but say, the question of what an action would be skillful, an action would be unskillful. I mean, this, these are the kinds of choices you're making all the time. And then you can reflect back on your choices in the past. Was that skillful? Was that unskillful? And then you can learn from it. Like walking five miles for a piece of carrot cake. <laughs> I mean, assu assuming that, okay, it does make a difference how you act, you do want to reflect back on your actions. Was it worth it? Was it not worth it? That's, you know, that's a useful reflection. It's one, of those, it's one of those areas where you've got to take a, got to take a position. So this is why the Buddha says, okay, there, there are four issues in which it's okay to be agnostic, but this is not one of them. Because agnosticism itself can be a form of clinging. As he goes on to say, the next passage, an instructed one of the real person may be doubtful and uncertain, having come to no conclusion with regard to the true Dharma. That doubt, that uncertainty, that coming to no conclusion is a fabrication. Okay. And then, what is the cause of that fabrication? Touched by what is felt, born of the contact with ignorance, craving arises. The fabrication is born of that. Okay, it's, you can't sort of say, I'm going to step out of taking positions on things and that will be my pure view, that will make me pure, keep me out of, dis keep me out of arguments, keep me out of discussions. It's still, there's still a form of craving there that's going to cause you suffering particularly if it comes to issues about what should and should not be done, because then you're leaving yourself unprotected. Margaret? I found it very helpful in the past um, to implement, and I haven't done it for a while, and I feel like it's a good idea, is, is, is uh, your idea on stepping back. Um, I found it very, very helpful, because at least you kind of step back from whatever your impulse is to take care of whatever the situation is. Um, and you get a chance to look at everything for that brief moment. And uh, I mean, I found that simple act very valuable. And that's based on the assumption that there is a skillful and unskillful way of acting. And maybe I'm too involved in a particular assumption to see that, and I've got to step back. Yes? Poor Mary. It seems all too easy to be in that place saying, no, the caregiver is definitely not worth it. But the pizza, no, that's not Instead of seeing the craving that was or is the issue. And it seems that often that more honest look is, well, it's the craving for this that doesn't lead to long-term happiness that's the issue I need to look at, not the object. 
Well, I mean, there are some things that are actually worth walking five miles for. I'm thinking, I'm thinking right now of when, when I was a child, we were subject to a blizzard one time, and my father had to work, walk several miles because there was no formula in the house for my younger brother. In that case, it was worth it. To keep his child alive. And so that's the case where we have to weigh, okay, the, the hardships of having to walk through the blizzard all that time. But he's going to come back and he's going to keep his kid alive. That's the case where it's worth it. Yeah, it's a wise decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I keep thinking about this conversation about the object, and I keep thinking about the, the walk. Mm -hmm. The walk seems extremely valuable, whether, I mean, maybe if it's for a bad, but if she hadn't taken the walk, she might have processed through the mind what was going, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the journey seems like it's worth something. Okay, in that case, go take the journey, but don't buy the cake. <laughs> no, there are times when you have to sit, you have to sit with it and say, "Is this really worth it?" And just sitting with it, say, "Come down to it, really." And, okay, let's let's just pretend. Okay, I'm going to pre pretend like I'm going to buy the cake, but I'm not going to buy the cake. But I have to walk five miles to get it. Walk back. And you get to think. You're right that it, taking the walk does force you to think about things you might not have thought about otherwise. Okay. And finally, in that section, this Bajya Mahita, Mahita, is talking to these wanderers. And they, they accuse the Buddha of being a nihilist who doesn't teach anything. In this particular case, they want to know if he said it, is that all asceticism categorically denounced? And he says, no, it's not categorical. There are some cases where he actually praises it. They say he never says anything clear about anything. They said, no, he's clear about what's skillful and what's not skillful. If anyone asks you, what does the Buddha teach? He teaches what's skillful and what's not skillful. That's the clearest answer right there. Because that's what lies at the basis of right view. Okay, look on page 8, bottom of page 8 on appropriate attention. appropriate attention is, is you take the categories of right view and you apply them to your actions. In other words, you ask yourself, what I'm, what I'm about to do right now, where does it fit in those Four Noble Truths? Where does it fit on the, on the continuum between what, what is skillful and unskillful? And once you've decided where it fits, then you know what to do. Whether it's something that should be abandoned or something that should be developed, what the proper duty is for that. That's the role of appropriate attention. That first passage here is taken from Dependent Core Rising. And the basic point of it is that we don't start with bare attention. 
Um, the idea that you know, your sensory contact with the world starts with simply an act of bare attention, and then on top of that, all these other things come piling on. The Buddha never, never speaks in those terms. He says, even before you see things, you've already engaged in fabrication, you've already engaged in name and form. As he says, from ignorance comes fabrication, from fabrications comes consciousness, from consciousness comes name and form. Attention is one of those name factors. So even prior to, and these all come before sensory contact. So even before you see anything, you're already priming your mind in a particular direction by what you're going to pay attention to. Like that Far Side cartoon, you know, the, at, at, an atomic war is going on. People are running all over the place crazy. And you're, at, you're in an intersection in the middle of a city. You see the atom bombs going off on the horizon. And there's this guy who's come to a stop at the red light. And there's a dog in the car and there's a dog on the sidewalk. And they look at each other. And the caption is, finally Fido saw something that captured his attention <laughs> in the midst of everybody running around. You know, Fido is tuned into what, what are the dogs doing. And that's all Fido sees. So even before he met the other dog, he was primed to look for dogs, right? And our minds are primed to look for certain things based on what we're going to pay attention to is based on how we've been talking to ourselves, how we, what perceptions we hold in mind, all those different fabrication factors. This is going to color our attention. So there is no such thing as bare attention. There is attention, however, that is appropriate, that is going to help lead to the end of suffering, and that's appropriate, that's inappropriate because it's going to lead to more suffering. And so what we're, our question is, uh, what is appropriate attention? And what, what appropriate attention does, it, it applies the categories of skillful and unskillful. It applies the categories of the Four Noble Truths to what you're doing right now, to make sure that you're actually following through with the duties that apply to those truths. For example, the passage on page 9. A virtuous monk, Gordi to my friend, should attend in an appropriate way to the five clinging aggregates, as in constant stressful disease, a cancer, an error, a painful an affliction, alien, a dissolution, emptiness, not self. And the very past, last paragraph, sentence there is, For it is possible that a virtuous monk attending in an appropriate way to these five clinging aggregates, as in constant, etc., would re realize the fruit of stream entering. Now remember that five clinging aggregates come under the first noble truth. The duty with regard to the first noble truth is to comprehend them. Comprehend them means you understand them in a way that leads to an end of passion. This is one of the ways you do it. You apply these perceptions to those things. So appropriate attention takes the duty that you're about to do, you know, they're supposed to do to that particular noble truth, and you actually make sure that you apply it. So that the Four Noble Truths don't just stay there in the background as this kind of vague teaching, but it's something that's supposed to be guiding your actions. In this case, you look at your body and you see if this body is stressful and constant. You, if there's a perception that you're really holding on to, you say, wait a minute, this too has been fabricated. Where we really get messed up is our emotions. Think, okay, the things I think may be inf influenced by other people, but my emotions, they're mine. They, they tell me who the real me is. And the Buddha says, no, these, these two are fabrications. The fabrications are not reliable. If you learn how to gain some distance from them, gain some dispassion for them, you're seeing them in terms of the Four Noble Truths and you're applying the duty, as the, the duty that is appropriate to the First Noble Truth there. So that's one way that we apply appropriate attention.
next passage deals with skillful and unskillful qualities. What is this food for the arising of unarisen analysis of qualities, which is a factor of awakening? There are mental qualities that are skillful and unskillful, blameworthy and blameless, gross and refined, siding with darkness and with light. To foster appropriate attention to them, this is the food of the rising of unarisen analysis of qualities, or for its growth and increase when it's arisen. This is the case you're trying to develop this particular factor. You're trying to develop this discernment factor. And so what you do is you apply appropriate attention to what in my mind is skillful, what in my mind is not skillful. You're trying to apply that analysis. Most often we don't think about our own thoughts in those terms. When was the last time you said, gee, this desire I have is an unskillful desire? Usually the desire comes up and says, let's go with it. Not always, but <laughs> when, you, when you have some sense, you stop saying, wait a minute, this is not what I want. That's when you're actually engaged in appropriate attention. In other words, you're learning how to classify. This, this kind of desire is an unskillful quality. This kind of factor of my mind is a skillful quality. Let's, let's develop it. That's when you're engaging in appropriate attention. Yes. Page nine. Mm -hmm. Sensory consciousness. Is the second one jitta consciousness and the other one is sensory consciousness? Are they different? I don't, I don't understand your question. Um, so, so consciousness here twice is the same consciousness? It's the same consciousness, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is consciousness translated as inhaling jitta? Vinyana. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Similarly, you're trying to starve uncertainty. And what you do is you look at the mental qualities that are skillful and unskillful, blameworthy and blameless, gross and refined. It's, it's the same process to develop your mind's discernment as it is to get rid of your, get rid of your uncertainty. You are feeding your discernment at the same time you're starving your uncertainty by analyzing your mind in terms of these thoughts are skillful, these thoughts are unskillful. There's a sutta, uh, Manjama 19, where the Buddha is talking about how he got on the path, which was basically seeing, looking at his thoughts, not so much in terms of their content, but where they came from, where they would lead. If I were to follow through with this thought, where would it lead me to? If it leads me to an unskillful direction, I've got to learn how to starve it. If it leads me to a skillful direction, okay, I encourage it. That's how you apply appropriate attention to your mind. Doubt about what's right and what's wrong. And again, notice that you, the way you overcome it is by developing your discernment. It's not by saying, you know, I, I swear in a pack, stack of Bibles, I believe in what the Buddha said. 
you actually look at your mind, okay, if I actually follow through with this thought, where would it take me? Yes. Okay, equanimity is one of the things you want to develop. Okay, you're looking at a particular thought, and instead of asking yourself whether you like or don't like the thought, just ask yourself, if I continue thinking this, where is it going to take me? Do I want to go there? Is it leading me in the right direction? And if you decide this is not leading me in the right direction, I've got to starve that thought. And it's, but it's okay to, that feels funny to say this, but it's okay to starve that, but if you realize something else comes in and you're like, hmm, you know. What else is coming in? Another, another, Okay, in that, ca in that case, you've got, you've got to watch it to see, okay, where is this going to take me? So it's a, kind of a micro thing. You're not, you're not, it, so he's just talking about, or Buddha's talking about choosing something, feeling it at the moment, yeah, is it the right direction, not the right direction, and then being certain and going until... You okay, if you learned learned, I made, a, made the wrong choice. Let's go back and re reconsider. And, and staying open, though, to... See, that's, that's the... I, I, uh, I struggle with the idea of like putting blinders on. I'm uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, because then I, I also think about the equanimity. You know, like... I'm not a person that wants to cut things off completely. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a, there's a... Yeah, but um, I would say, if, when you keep saying, I'm the sort of person who does X, I'm the sort of person who does Y, say, wait a minute, I want to be the sort of person who does things appropriate for the occasion. Yeah. And there are times when it's appropriate. So I'm going to stick with this and I'm going to stick with it all the way through. Other times you say, okay, I'll, I'll take some input and see if maybe some maybe I made the wrong decision. Yeah, I guess it's that I, I don't trust myself to make the right decision mm -hmm. all the time, the first time, and I wanted to decision. All kinds of defilements can slip in there. <laughs> it's good to say, if I really held to this for continually, what would happen? Let's, let's check it out. And be willing to ride with it for a while before you before you reconsider. We don't have much time. Are we bound to have to stop at four? Okay. I had a student who um, had a stroke and went up to the place where she, she, she belonged to a particular Dharma group. And she had battled with a stroke for quite a long time, was getting her memory back. She was getting her various faculties back. And she was finally well enough that she can actually sit and attend a Dharma talk. 
And so she was going to come to the Dharma talk I was going to give at that center that night. And so I asked her, what would you like to Dharma talk on? She said, faith. Now, faith in, this was in the Bay Area. Faith is the F word in Bay Area Buddhism, you know? (laughs) 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 And I realized I'm going to get in big trouble tonight. But I felt sorry for her. I mean, she'd really been struggling. And this is what had kept her going. She had conviction in, in what she was doing. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to have to ignore the whole room. And I gave the talk, and I was just looking at her all during the talk and resisting all these other, you could just feel the. <laughs> if you want to listen to the talk, it's on audio dharma. It's called Faith and Ardency. The reason I'm talking about this is I had to just stick with that one decision. I'm going, to, I'm going to give that talk to that one person, and I'm going to ignore everybody else for the rest of the night. <laughs> she was drinking it up. She was just so happy. And how did you feel? If I may ask, how did you feel afterwards? I felt that I accomplished something. I mean, it felt really weird to have me say, I'm just going to resist all that. But I felt I was glad I'd done it. And I tried to make it light as possible. I started by asking for a show of hands. How many people in here say that their practice is getting better and better in every way and every day? Show of hands. No hands, right? So, okay, what do you do when the practice hits a valley? What is, what is it, when it when there's a slough? What carries you through? You've got to have some faith. You've got to believe in what you're doing, even though it's not showing its results right away. I never would be, but probably. But if I were giving a speech and I was having to ignore this uh, mm-hmm. a preponderance of other mm-hmm. people's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if if indeed they, if I mean, I'm assuming that you were feeling those. Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I would question. I, I, I wonder if I would. I didn't want to. I didn't want to let her down. I hear that. Mm-hmm. I hear that. Um, and I, I want. I guess I guess maybe the better question is um, how how what was your working in in your in your mind to allow for that without the guilt of you know not not addressing the other I figured I was I'll, I'll deal with those people later. <coughs> I've got somebody who's recovering from a stroke right now. I've got to help her. That was, when I was, that was what was going through my mind. Yes? Let's hope. You never know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because I keep thinking the story that Larry Rosenberg tells about the professor at MIT. He was a behavioral psych professor. And he had this habit of pacing back and forth in front of the room as he gave his lectures. Now, these were MIT students. You know what they did? They decided, let's do a behavioral psych experiment on the professor. <laughs> when he's in this corner, we will pay careful attention to what he's saying. We'll write down notes. When he's in that corner, we will look out the window. We'll look away. <laughs> sure enough, they had him in that corner within two weeks. You know. And he didn't know what had happened. 
And so, and so ever since then, I've said, I'm not going to be that kind of professor. <laughs> Margaret? It's, it's interesting because I was thinking to myself how valuable directed thought in evaluation, using that, mm-hmm. implementing that um, in my meditation was, was for me because I began to understand how, what a lure wandering is, mm-hmm. what a, how how attractive mm-hmm. we come into this life. You know, it's, it's, it's just a strong <clears throat> carrot in front of the nose, this mm-hmm. wandering. And so to implement uh, directed thought and evaluation in, in my meditation was very profound. Yeah, but it's you know, there's that story the Buddha tells about how the the the, the, Brahma, the self-luminous Brahmins become not not Brahmas become non-luminous. It's you know they they're sort of floating around this surface of water, and all of a sudden this this film forms on the water, and it looks attractive, and out of wantonness they say, hey, what does that taste like? And they eat it, and then they lose their self-luminosity. They say, hey, what's that like? You know, so you have to be careful what you let yourself wander off to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, back to back to those readings. The bottom one is about questions that you should not pay attention to. And the most interesting ones are at the very end of that first paragraph. Am I, am I not, what am I, how am I, where is this being come from, where is it bound? The questions of self-identity. Who am I? These are questions that lead to becoming. Who am I? Am I the, the, the desire of the pizza? Am I the desire of the carrot cake? Am I the desire of you know, whatever? A book down at Powell's? Whatever. Is that who I want to be? Is that who I am? Is that the true me? Once you start asking about who's the true me, you start getting involved in becoming. And then you start developing views. These are some of the views. I have no self. The first one is, I have a self. The second one is, I have no self. And we're often told the Buddha taught that you have no self. He says this is the thicket of views. It is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. Or it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self. It is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self. In fact, you can go through Western philosophy and classify those views. The first two, perceiving but it's precisely by means of self that I perceive self, that's Fichte. It's precisely by means of self I perceive not-self, that's Leibniz. It's precisely by means of not-self that I perceive self, that would be Kant. And the Buddha is basically saying, don't go there. <laughs> it's not worth it. Or that this very self of mind, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is a self of mind that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change and will endure as long as eternity. All of these views are a thicket of views, a writhing of views. There's a question of paying attention to the wrong questions. The questions you should pay attention to are, okay, where is the stress? What's causing it? How do I put an end to it? Those are questions that are worthwhile. Any questions on that? 
We could have spent a whole afternoon just on that one passage, but I just want to give you an idea that what attention, appropriate attention comes down to is, hey, what are the questions I'm asking about my experience? What are my questions I'm asking about my life? Are they really ones that would lead me to put an end to suffering, or are they going to lead me away? And you realize, okay, this question is leading me away. Let's just drop it. There are certain things you don't have to answer. Okay, the one by, by, by means of self that I perceive self that you actually see the activity of the self in, in action as you engage in with the world. Say, oh, this is me that's doing all this. I perceive it directly. I don't have to see it, perceive it through anything else. And then with Leibniz, he was basically saying, you don't really see the world out there. All you see are the impressions that are on your eyes, and then the representations that the brain gives you, basically sends messages to you. There's so many filters between you and the world out there that you don't really perceive the world directly. It's what's going on in your mind that tells you that there's a world out there. That's perceiving not-self by means of self. Perceiving self by means of not-self is Kant's view is that you don't really, you don't really have a sense of, you don't directly perceive yourself but you see its impact in the world out there, therefore you can assume that there is a self doing this. And the Buddha is saying, don't go there. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's a combination of right view, right mindfulness, and right effort. Which the Buddha says, those three faculty, those three factors circle around all the other factors of the path. You have an idea. Okay, this is the right framework to apply. I have to remember to apply it, and then I'm actually going to apply it. And appropriate attention is kind of what combines all of those factors together. Yes. Um, so I wanted to ask if I understand this correctly. When you, when a person would choose, I would like to, you know, realize nibbana and have that as the main, mm-hmm. primary goal. It, it it seems as though the idea of knowledge for the sake of knowledge or facts, having them, clinging onto them, that needs to take a back seat. So I'm wondering is, what I'm wondering is if if you choose to realize nibbana as the most important thing in your life, does that mean that every single other activity, be it faith? action, conviction, everything is either going towards or moving away from it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do have to realize, though, that all of us have we have certain responsibilities in life, so some, sometimes we have certain responsibilities that we've got to take care of sure. as part of the path. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of people say, I'm just going to abandon my responsibilities and go for it. They don't go very far. Yeah. But there is a but there is almost a purposeful siphoning down to essentials when you right. go certain right. things. Right. Because okay. I was thinking, like, my attachment to facts for the sake of facts and knowledge, mm-hmm. especially for winning an argument or something like of that sort, mm-hmm. it's like that seems like something that would get in the way. It, gets, it really gets in the way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
stewing over letting go of it. So you said something earlier, and I, so I can't remember. So I'm lost. Okay, I'm lost. Get over it. I'm lost. So, and comma. I, my understanding was comma was in, intent, there was the element of intention to it. So comma matters. So, so there's the rebirth part where there was common in past lives with intention, whoever that was. Now I'm here, I'm living with it, and now at this moment, I have to build my own comma. So I appreciate that. I think that is a skillful view for me. Yeah. So now, now what I'm struggling with is this faith. 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 The faith that your actions that you that you have the choice right now. So what about the rebirth part, though? Because I, I mean, I, I have so much faith in the past so far, but I might have it wrong. I might be deluded mm-hmm. to the extent. Well, you're in good company. <laughs> you know, I, I think I've talked to Carol about this. You know, like the rebirth part. Like, well, I'll just set that aside because it's not skillful to stew over it. It, it, it works up Richikichi in me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's skillful to put it aside, isn't it? I mean, yeah, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it really bothers you that much, say, okay, I'll have an open mind to it, but I'm not going to think about it all that much, but I'll, I'll be open to the idea that my actions, I really do want to act skillfully right now. Yeah. And, I, and, I tr- and I trust that acting skillfully each time I do it will be worthwhile. Yeah, that works. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, if you've got responsibilities that you have to see through, see them through. But don't pick up any new ones that you don't have to. Okay. Two last sections. One beyond right view and then some teachings from the the Ajans. Okay. Okay, the basic message of that first passage there would ask Sariputta, do you take it on conviction that the faculty of conviction, the faculty of persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment when develop and pursue gain a footing in the deathless as the deathless is the final end of consummation? And Sariputta says, I don't take it on conviction, I know. Because he's pursued the path all the way. So what we're saying here is the, there are these things that you take on conviction, but they will lead you to a point where you know it's true. So when you're letting go of the path, it's not saying, well, that was a useful idea, but I don't believe it anymore. No, you, you put it aside because right at the moment, I don't need this because there's, some, there's something better that comes from holding on to that view. But you don't replace it with another view that says something else. But they do lead to knowledge. You don't, you're not going to be just taking this on faith forever. Once you gain full awakening, you say, okay, I know. 
The second passage is a little bit more interesting. You know, the Buddha talks about dealing with your defilements. You want to see when they arise. Excuse me, you want to see their origination, in other words, what causes them. You want to see them passing away. You want to see their allure, why is it you go for them. You want to see their drawbacks. And then when you compare the allure with the drawbacks, you say it's not worth it, you develop dispassion, and that's the escape. Now, it's easy enough to see you apply that to defilements. Anything that's getting in the way of your concentration, anything that's getting in the way of your discernment, you have to analyze it. Okay, when it comes, why does it come? And when it comes, does it stay or does it go? And you, you find that these things come and go, come and go. But then once they're gone, then you pick them up again. Then you ask yourself, well, why did I pick it up? What's the allure? And this is, this is one area where the mind tends to lie to itself a lot. Why do you like carrot cake? <laughs> and the good part of your mind will come up with a good, you know, respectable reason. But then maybe there's something else that was also going on. And if you don't really see the real reason it was going on, then you can look at the drawbacks all you want to and you're not going to let go. It's until you say, oh, it was really because of X that I wanted it. And then you compare X with the drawbacks and say, gosh, it was not worth it. Then you let it go. Okay. Here, however, the Buddha says you apply this to the five faculties. When you, when you discern as they have come to be the origination, passing away the allure, the drawbacks, and the escape from the five faculties. This is what the Buddha is talking about, letting go of the raft when you get to the other side. He said, even these good things, if you hold on to them, there are drawbacks. They prevent you from getting to something that is unfabricated. And then you let them go. And then you escape even from the path. So that's where we're headed. Any questions on that? Yes? Uh, just to clarify, so a stream emperor still needs to apply this. It's just full awakening that uh, we brought. Even at the moment of stream entry, you have to drop everything. But then there's a part of the mind that picks it back up again. But you've dropped it long enough to see, oh, this really does lead to the deathless. And then you're, you know, you have this, you've had this tendency all along to cling, so you want to cling to the deathless. And in that of clinging, it, it stops. Your awareness of it stops, let's put it that way. It will, you withdraw from that. As an example, you were saying the deathless is something you're clinging to that you can drop and never pick up again. I mean, if the analogy, of, maybe I was thinking too small because I'm thinking of the raft. You know, mm -hmm. if you get to the other side, I understand you're there. You don't need to cling to it. You need to hold on to it. But you might need to get to the other side again. No, no, you don't want to go back to that by the other side. So then the smaller, then that's, you know, like. The problem with the stream matter is just the stream matter still has some habits from the other side that have not been let go yet. Well, everything everything that you really like in life, you've, in the past, you've held on to. You've been holding on to the path, and you let go of this, and you let go of the path. And this is something even much better than the path. And your immediate instinct, without even thinking about it, is to try to grab onto it. 
Mm-hmm. So whoops, that's it. Do like walking in nature? I, I love to do that. Um, it, it, this is something very different. This is something, you, if, as, as long as it's clinging, you cannot experience this. No, it's like you you arrive there and say, well, I want to do this forever. I'll give you an example. There's a spot in the north room of the Grand Canyon that I really like a lot. It's a great place to go camping. And I took a trip there last June, and it turned out that one news after another, the camp, the place where we camped was further away from that spot than we normally go. And it's, it turned out that one morning, I, I took a walk to get down to that one spot. And I looked at my watch, and in 10 minutes, I was going to have to go back. And so the first thought I had when I sat down is, I hope I can come back here again. And I realized, boy, that was bad. <laughs> I crave this so much that I can't even just be there. <laughs> Then I'd let it go. But, it, but the deathless is something that if you have that feeling moment of craving, you're out. Yeah, because then you could be at Greater Lake and do the same thing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to understand the, anyway, the magnitude of what you're talking about. Okay, it, the, the deathless, I mean, it's something totally unfabricated. You're stepping out of space and time, but you still have your old habits from space and time, and you say, well, I want to hold on to this, and you're out. You're back into space and time again. It's just an old habit. The deathless is beyond space and time. I know, but there's you still have this you still have this residual tendency that you haven't gotten through yet. That's the difference between your first taste of awakening and total awakening. So there's this desire to it's like you've seen the mountain or something and there's this desire to stay there. I just and you say, I, I want this. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> which, is a, which is good. Well, it's. It's good to have that. Yeah, you have to turn around and look at well, who's the wanting, and why did I have to create a sense of me around there that wanted it? Mm-hmm. There's still some unfinished work. Mm-hmm. Mary, Mary, you had a question. Yeah. Um, I earlier mentioned, you know, the simile of the monkey and holding on and. Personally, just feeling a sense of relief with, I don't know, just a sense of relief of wanting. Now, from what you're saying, I'm thinking, I need to understand, I'm asking, actually, do I need to understand what I'm wanting in order to understand how to let go or just off You have to understand, why do I, why would I want what, what's the lack? What's the lack that I feel that I need to make up for? Yeah. So I get that. Mm-hmm. When you get that, you can see the. I can see the ridiculous. Well, I, I'm gonna put it that way. I I'm craving the um, carrot cake because 
have this tendency. We start as little kids. You come across something really good into your mouth. It looks good into your mouth. You hit the death in your mouth. <laughs> you still have some growing up to do. You still have some growing up to do at that point. Yes? My, my question is on that same point. So I just want to review what you said about you said with hindrances you see them as they come to be um, like I'm angry or I'm proliferating on something mm-hmm. and you're saying the hard part or a hard part is seeing the, is being honest with yourself about the origination of that anger well the origination and then the allure why you, hold, why you bring it back again because right. mm-hmm. with the origination there are two things either there's something that comes in totally out of the blue and sparks something or you're out there looking for something to get angry about I mean, why do people turn on hate radio? They want something new to get worked up about. Yeah, so Either siding with a person on the hate radio or hating the person who is on the hate radio. I mean, there's, there's reasons for, you know. So um, for me, the most recent one was getting an email and not proliferating. So is the origination the email? Is the origination the quality of the email that somehow hooked me in? Okay, there's... Your sense of okay, this this was outrageous, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. That was what that was the origination. Okay. It's my it's what I'm bringing to the email. Yeah. Like, that's outrageous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the the email may have very well been outrageous, but you're in a different state of mind. Sometimes you get that email and it doesn't have any effect on you at all. Okay. Okay. So really looking at sort of what what, what insight what you're bringing to it now. And then if you can drop it, but then you pick it up again. They ask, well, why don't I pick it up again? So, so how does that fit with um, having a relationship with someone and wanting to say, you know, don't send me that email next time because X, Y, Z. That, doesn't, that seems different than looking at my part of it, but it seems also important. Well, again, for, as part of the relationship, you would say, yeah, I, please don't send an email like that. But then you have to look at yourself. If, if just an email can get me worked up, there are a lot of things that are worse than emails, you know. So doing, it's okay to do both. Look at the right. Mm-hmm. Stuff, but also, you know, work on the relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to have some. I mean, what the frames of reference are for, foundation or the establishing of mindfulness, are to get the mind into concentration. And when the mind is in concentration, you're a lot, lot more likely to see things as they're arising, and you can deal with them more quickly. You don't have to wait until they get fully blown. It's like it's a good thing to be with your breath most most of the day. Yes. 
Well, in my example last week, a few days ago, of getting angry in the meeting, the concentration was on the content of the back and forth. Mm -hmm. And if I'd been concentrating on my breath, I wouldn't have heard it. Oh, you, you would have heard it. Really? Mm -hmm. Just say, okay, I'm going to be in my body, listen to them talking, but I'm going to maintain my sense of being grounded in my body. And breathing easily. That way, okay, when they say something really outrageous, you can ask them, what would be the most effective thing to say right now? Rather than saying, I've got to get something out of my system. Okay. Yes? Okay, let's look what the Ajans have to say. <coughs> look at the top of page 11, first full paragraph. They can say inconstant, but it's just what they say. They say stress, but it's just what they say. They can say not-self, but it's just what they say. Whatever they say, it's the way it is. It's true for them, and they're completely right, but completely wrong. As for us, only if we get ourselves beyond right and wrong, we'll be doing fine. He's talking about, okay, there comes a point where you have to let go of right views. And the sense of right and wrong at that point gets dropped. Roads, I love this. Roads are built for people to walk on, but dogs and cats can walk on them as well. <laughs> Same people and crazy people use the roads. They didn't build the roads for crazy people, but crazy people have every right to use them. As the precepts, even fools and idiots can observe them. The same with concentration. Crazy or sane, they can come and sit. In discernment, we all have the right to come and talk our heads off, but it's completely a question of being right or wrong. None of the valuables of the mundane world give any real pleasure. They're nothing but stress. They're good as far as the world is concerned, but nirvana doesn't have any need for them. Right views and wrong views are an affair of the world. Nirvana doesn't have any right views or wrong views. For this reason, and this is the lesson, whatever is wrong view we should abandon, whatever is a right view we should develop until it, the day it can fall from our grasp. That's when we can be at our ease. Okay, that's pretty much put, putting the message in, in a nutshell. Okay, whatever is wrong we abandon, we hold on to it and we develop right view, but then we're going to get to a point where we don't need right or wrong views. We go beyond. But I love that. Cats and dogs can walk on the roads as well. <laughs> And then John, and John Cha, you're coming back from the market, you've got the banana. Why did you buy the banana? I brought it to eat it. You're going to eat the peel too? No, I don't believe you. If you're not going to eat the peel, why are you carrying it? You're carrying a coconut. Why are you carrying the coconut? I'm carrying it home to make a curry. You're going to curry the husk too? No, then why are you carrying it? So, with what are you going to answer this question? With desire. If there's no desire, you can't give rise to ingenuity or to discernment. That's why we make an effort in our meditation. Even though we do this through letting go, it's like the banana or the coconut. Why are you carrying the peel of the husk? Because the time hasn't come yet to throw it away. So there are certain things you hold on to because you need to hold on to them. If you threw away the peel of the banana, the banana would become mush in your hands. If you threw away your precepts, threw away your concentration, your mind would become mush. So as long as you need these things, you hold on to them.
If they accuse us of eating the coconut husk, so what? We know what we're doing. <laughs> so, these are things, right views are things that you learn, that you hold on to, as long as they can help you not fall into wrong view. And so you can develop the path. And so you cling to them, you hold on to them. They get to the, take you to the other side, and that's the point where you don't need them anymore, then you can let them go. The only reason you pick them up after that is you're going to teach somebody, and you say, okay, this is right, this is what you need to believe, this is what you need to hold on to in order to get across. But we're not holding on to them for their own sake. They're taking us someplace beyond them. So when you straighten out that, even though there is, you know, the Buddha says clinging is suffering, okay, there's a certain amount of clinging on the path. And when you understand that, okay, then all the paradoxes about having right view and wrong view and clinging to views, that all gets settled. Any questions? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. Thank you.